In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the secret history of Lyme disease. It would be a lot like Agent Orange or the Tuskegee experiments for the government, where, oops, we did these military operations, the general public was harmed, and there would be lawsuits and reparations that would have to happen. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. 
Welcome to your Wednesday and happy Canada Day to all of my fellow countrymen. On this day in 1867 at noon, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia and the province of Canada were proclaimed the Dominion of Canada with the great Sir John A. Macdonald as our first Prime Minister. Canada and the United States together, two of the greatest nations on earth, peaceful, prosperous, generous, tolerant. Let's keep it that way. Chris Newby is here, the author of Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease. It's a riveting thriller reminiscent of The Hot Zone. And it's a true story which dives into the mystery surrounding one of the most controversial and misdiagnosed conditions of our time, Lyme disease. Before that, don't forget to register for my live web conference on digital consciousness. Are we living in the matrix? This is happening Thursday, July the 9th from 10 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. Eastern. Thursday, July 9, 10 p.m. to 12.30 Eastern. Jim Elvidge, philosopher, electrical engineer, and the author of The Universe Solved and Digital Consciousness, A Transformative Vision will join me. This live web conference via Zoom is limited to 100 participants, so register soon. Go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and under the Events and Appearances tab, click on Web Conferences. All the details are there, plus a link to register and a Frequently Asked Questions section to answer all of your technical questions if you're new to Zoom, strangeplanet.ca, and under the Events and Appearances tab, click on Web Conferences. Ticks are vectors for all sorts of nasty germs, notably Lyme disease, the sixth most commonly reported infectious disease in the United States, that according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Decades after it was first identified, it's still often misdiagnosed. Symptoms include an expanding body rash, joint pains, fatigue, chills, and fever. Could the spread of Lyme disease be attributable to a classified decades-old bioweapons program? as some people claim. The ticks as weapons issue made headlines back in July 2019 thanks to the U.S. House of Representatives Chris Smith, a Republican from New Jersey, who introduced legislation directing the Department of Defense to review claims that the Pentagon researched tick-based bioweapons in the mid-20th century. The amendment passed. Smith said he was inspired to do this by a number of books and articles suggesting that significant research had been done at U.S. government facilities, including Fort Detrick and Plum Island, to turn ticks and other insects into bioweapons. Congressman Smith's legislative actions were inspired partly by Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, a book written by Chris Newby a Stanford University science writer who also served as a senior producer on a Lyme disease documentary titled Under Our Skin. Chris Newby joins me now. Chris Newby, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks we, for having me on. My pleasure. We've been so focused with coronavirus, we've forgotten about Lyme disease, but it's still out there and, and rampaging, correct? Yes, ticks don't honor social distancing rules. What is the current status? How bad is it? We are now well into Lyme disease season, tick season. How bad is it? Give us some statistics. In the United States, uh, there's almost, uh, CDC estimates there's only four, almost 400,000 cases a year. That would be on average 1,000 a day. But some people believe that's a lowball estimate. 
Uh, I talked to a woman in Pennsylvania who collects ticks from all over the U.S. And she says in Pennsylvania, which is fairly near Canada, um, uh, tick bites are up about five times this year because of a mild winter. So it's bad. It's a deer tick. Is that because Pennsylvania is heavily populated with deer? Or why is Pennsylvania such a hot spot right now? Well, uh, I think they have a lot of, I, you know, in, in my book, Bitten, I, my premise is that there was a, a point release in the late 60s and, and the front wave of intense ticks is spreading outwards. And I think that's just where the wave, you know, the intense wave is. Um, I, th- I think it's bad everywhere. Uh, you know, New York, Connecticut, it's going up into Maine and Canada now going down into the Carolinas. This is Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases. It's a spirochete, correct? Explain exactly what Lyme disease is, how it enters the body, and how it affects the body. Yes, so Lyme disease is a bacterium. It's uh, shaped like a corkscrew, a spiral, uh, really long, about a micron long, and it normally lives in low numbers in the belly of a tick when a tick bites a mammal, including humans. Um, it takes a blood meal and the backwash from the tick uh, releases the spirochetes as they multiply like crazy when they hit that warm blood. And then the spirochetes um, hitch a ride in the in the bloodstream and as quickly as they can, the spirochetes go to immune protected sites. That might be the brain, uh, joints, places where you have scar tissue, and then it just settles in and uh, starts wreaking havoc on your body, creating lots of inflammation. It can present as many different ailments, things like juvenile arthritis and even Parkinson's, I'm told. Just run down sort of the the lengthy list of things that Lyme disease can, I guess, mimic. Yes, it's called uh, the great imitator, just like syphilis, another spirochetal uh, disease, spirochetal-caused disease. So um, I personally had it. It's sort of like having Alzheimer's, arthritis, chronic fatigue, multiple sclerosis, all at the same time and that's because it's it likes to um, create a lot of inflammation in your neurological system so you know wherever your nerves hit which is just about everything it can wreak havoc what about lupus lupus is an autoimmune condition um, and I would say there's a, a huge overlap between the symptoms of lupus and Lyme disease lupus is more or less like MS uh, a syndrome, it's just, or Parkinson's, it's a label for a set of symptoms. It's not really a disease. Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the Lyme disease spirochete, causes its own set of diseases. So, you know, there's no test for lupus or MS or Alzheimer's. Well, there is for Alzheimer's, but uh, it's a set of symptoms. And perhaps some of the those cases were triggered by Lyme disease or are being fueled by a lingering Lyme disease infection. You mentioned Alzheimer's. I mean, that's only confirmed post-mortem, correct? But, but but how many, I've heard people, researchers bandy about certain numbers of predictions about how many cases of Alzheimer's may in fact be Lyme disease. Do you have a handle on that? I don't think anybody's done any real detailed analytical scientific studies on that yet. Um, but I'm sure they're coming down the road. I mean, it's, you know, long... It, Alzheimer's is basically a bunch of garbage in your brain. The communications doesn't work in your brain anymore, and there's a slow degradation of your 
your brain functions and Lyme disease can do the same thing. So, you know, does one cause, does Lyme cause it? We don't know yet. There have been no studies on that. The uh, the opening passages of uh, Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, you describe in great detail how the the tick lies in wait for its its victim. This is remarkable, how it stands up on its hind legs and is just kind of, it almost has like this thermal imaging capability. T- tell me about that. Um, yeah, I found this to be really fascinating. It's over hundreds of millions of years of evolution. It's just the perfect blood feeding machine so it doesn't have eyes or at least uh, the black-legged ticks don't have eyes and it sees the world really through uh, uh, carbon dioxide it has little sensors on its um, its front legs and so it the, at least black-legged ticks they crawl up on a blade of grass or they'll sit on a, a log and they'll raise their little arms heavenward and then wait for carbon dioxide and when a mammal goes by that's emitting carbon dioxide it'll grab on and then it'll slowly creep up and find a nice um, spot maybe under the hairline the armpits the belly buttons uh, and it'll start digging in and it'll uh, uh, it's got little like a little uh, <laughs> harpoon digs a hole blood fills into the hole and it laps up uh, the blood, it's also got like special chemical properties in its saliva. So there's a numbing agent, so you don't feel the little shovels digging in. And there's um, a, a coagulant, so you don't bleed out, you know, it, you don't scab over where the tick is trying to, to latch on. And then uh, the most devious part is that it has, um, it suppresses your immune system for up to a week. So whatever diseases or microbes are inside the tick, they sort of get a head start. So the human immune system can't knock out those germs. Fascinating, fascinating. And as you, as you mentioned, it's not the, it's not the tick uh, that, that presents the problems. It's all those bacterium and, and so forth that's in the gut of the tick, correct? Correct, correct. All right, so tell me about uh, your battle with with Lyme disease. How did that happen? How did you contract it? Well, my husband and I I took our two middle school boys and we had a week's vacation on Martha's Vineyard uh, just off Massachusetts. And we had a lovely vacation and we came home and about a week after we got back to California, my husband and I were sicker than we'd ever been. And it's just like the worst flu you've ever felt. COVID-like, you could say. And, you know, we went to the doctor and they said, oh, it's probably just a virus. Go home and come back if it gets worse. A few days later, it got worse. And, and we kept on going back and they said, we don't know what you have. You know, your white blood cells are low. Your temperature is not that high. It, um, and so long story short, we got sicker and sicker for a whole year. And it took 10 doctors and $60,000 and a year to get a diagnosis for two tick-borne diseases. That would be Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi, and Babesiosis, which was a cattle parasite. And together, they're pretty, a pretty nasty pair, uh, and that's what made us sick. Does it always, we always hear about, look for that red bullseye on your back or on your legs or on your arm or wherever you're bitten. Does it always present, I mean, that's in fact, that's the, uh, you know, on the cover of, of your book, Bitten, that red bullseye. Is it always there? Uh, no. And, you know, there's some controversy on that. Like, uh, 
the Lyme patients, uh, there's a big data study that says they only see the rash, you know, maybe 30% of the time. The sort of mainstream academics, oh, say the rash appears 80% of the time. You know, the fact is that uh, there are different strains. Some show the rash, some don't. Uh, sometimes the rash is, you know, under your hairline and you're not going to see it or on your backside. Uh, the other thing is it's it doesn't always have that hallmark bullseye format. Sometimes it's just a red circle. And, and you said that there's no, there doesn't seem to be any proper protocol for testing or diagnosing Lyme disease, even at this stage? Well, there are tests. And, you know, my, the evidence in my book shows that the first case around uh, Lyme, Connecticut and New York was around 1968 in Connecticut, and which is 52 years later. So 52 years later, we still don't have a test that reliably works in the first three weeks. And the tests are antibody tests, so they don't really test for the direct presence of the bug inside of you. They test for your body's reaction you know, it's the antibodies, the reaction, the antibodies are the reaction to the, to the invasion of the microbes. So it's a horrible test. And that's, you know, part of the controversy around diagnosis is some doctors think the test is reliable or the patients think it's reliable in the first week and it's not. It is more reliable later on. Uh, there are different strains in different parts of the country that don't necessarily show positive, you know, for the test that's used nationwide. Uh, so it's just a huge mess and there's no vaccine. There was a vaccine for a while. It was pulled from the market. Um, so, you know, 52 years later, uh, the disease keeps spreading. 52 years, uh, and still no reliable test. And yet we're led to believe that a couple months into COVID-19, they had already developed, uh, a test uh, is that uh, any thoughts on w why that might be? Uh, is it is it because Lyme disease is more complex? Why is it so difficult to come up with a, a reliable test? That, that's sort of a complicated question. Why don't we have a reliable test? Well, it's that when it, this new disease was discovered, a bunch of academics ran in and, and patented a bunch of surface proteins on the surface of this bacterium and to make test kits. So the early researchers patented these tests, these um, approaches to testing, it went to big pharma. And then instead with a new disease, instead of like uh, sharing information like we are with COVID, a lot of those pharmaceutical companies kept the information secret because it's an intellectual property. There's That's happening a little bit with COVID. And so instead of sharing information, it's kept in this tight circle and the people who originally developed that test kit have been somewhat predatory in keeping competition out. So I think that's the main reason we don't have a good test. I, I think we have the technology right now to have a good test. It's a very political thing. I don't, I don't know why, but we there would be no controversy with the disease if we had a great test. Now, let's go back to your bout with Lyme disease. Your, your husband and, and you had, had both contracted it. If it's caught early, what is the protocol? What did you do in your case? Well, if it's caught early, um, you can take a short dose of antibiotics. You, let's say you pull out an, an engorged tick, you'd take maybe two weeks of a low-cost antibiotic like doxycycline or amoxicillin, and everything would be fine. You know, you would kill Lyme and many of the other 
or pathogens that might be in the tick. You wouldn't kill viruses because those aren't killed by antibiotics. But, you know, Lyme disease seems to make whatever else is in the tick worse in your body and the tick bite, which suppresses your immune system. So no problem. The problem is without, the problem is the symptom set is so much like the flu. You get it in the summer, which is a little weird. You know, and symptoms are sort of close to COVID symptoms. The longer you let it brew inside of your body, the harder it is to get rid of. So uh, with us, you know, we we went to the doctors a couple times. Then they sent us to the infectious disease specialist. They're backed up around the holidays. And before you know it, you have six months. And then it's really hard to get rid of the disease with just a couple weeks of antibiotics. You know, for my husband and I, it took us probably uh, five or six years of antibiotic cocktails on and off and also anti-malarial drugs because that's what killed the second germ that was in the tick, the Babesia uh, parasite. That malaria drug, was that the hydroxychloroquine? No, that would be um, malrone or that might work. It might help a little bit. Mepron and malrone were the anti-malarials that we used. So if it goes chronic, uh, I mean, the problem is you're not supposed to use antibiotics for, for that long. So how do, you, how do you get a doctor to sign off on that to allow you to intensify that, that program? Because again, antibiotics for, for five or six years, that's unheard of almost. Yeah, and that's the tear in the medical community because the people that publish the guidelines and um, in my film, Under Our Skin, I show that the people who published the original Lyme guidelines in 2006 and 2001, they had patents on the test kits, et cetera. And none of the patients like to be on antibiotics that long. And so the people who are sort of the thought leaders on Lyme disease in from large academic medical centers, they're mostly infectious disease doctors, they want to minimize antibiotic use. And they've said, oh, you could only, they've said, oh, Lyme disease can be cured with four to six weeks of antibiotics. But when it's really entrenched, it, it just takes longer. So a lot of the patients out of exasperation, because they don't want the disease to get worse over years and years, they go to Lyme specialists who will treat with long-term antibiotics. And um, over the years, they developed a protocol where you pulse the antibiotics, you make sure you have supplements that detoxify, and you restore the gut bacteria along the way by taking probiotics. Uh, So it's not ideal but if you look at Lyme disease treatments, it's really uh, underfunded for research. I think we've only had seven sort of randomized placebo-based treatment trials, and it hasn't even uh, used cocktails of antibiotics, which is what's really working on human beings, you know, anecdotally now. So that's the problem. You have to go rogue outside of medical insurance if you're a patient and you, you want to get better, and it shouldn't be that way. And so... If it goes, if it's chronic and it's and it's left untreated, how bad can it get? Can you die from it? Um, it's a little bit like AIDS in that a lot of times you don't die of the actual bacteria, but like the the sequelae, the the diseases that take over when you're just really really sick and your immune system is trashed basically. So. Um, and there are a tremendous number of suicides for people with chronic Lyme. I mean, because you're not only fighting the disease, but you're fighting uh, the medical insurance and the stigma of a, of a medical system that says you don't have a real disease. I mean, there is no insurance reimbursement code in the United States for chronic Lyme. 
it's labeled as other things. It's, you know, lupus, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, etc. More of my conversation with Chris Newby, the author of Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease, when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. She's our full script dispensary manager and a nutritional therapist. Welcome back, Colleen Forgas. How are you? Great, Richard. So many people are having sleep issues. It's an epidemic, a national epidemic. What do we have at the full script dispensary for people who have trouble getting to sleep? The product I want to recommend today is called Insomnitol. It's by Designs for Health, and it includes GABA, which is something that we have discussed on previous conversations, also valerian root, passion flower, chamomile, melatonin. So these products are all designed to help calm the body and ensure a good night's sleep. Terrific. Insomnitol. To order, all you need to do is go to strangeplanet.ca, then click on the full script dispensary button. Once there, just register. And remember, all orders receive 10% off and orders of $50 or more ship for free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Theoretical physicists say that there is as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Chris Newby, the author of Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, is here. All right, now we get to the uh, the secret history of Lyme disease, and you mentioned while that you were filming Under Our Skin, and you were really struggling to find someone from, uh, I guess, the CDC and the NIH to come on camera and talk about it, and they all declined. Uh, why was that? Why couldn't you get, and we'll get to, to Willie Bergdorfer in a minute, but why couldn't you get anyone else from the CDC or the NIH to come on uh, your doc initially and talk about it? Well, the director and I, Andy Abram, Abrahams, we just would always shake our heads and said, this doesn't make any sense. And with every other disease, the researchers go, look at me, look at me, my disease is really bad, fund me, fund me. But it was the opposite in Lyme disease. So that always struck us as strange. On one level, it's scientists who are funded by the NIH or um, very political large organizations, and they run from a disease like Lyme disease, which is really controversial and contentious. Journalists do too. Like, why would you write about a disease? Because if you're pro-patient, then the CDC and the NIH will give you a hard time. You know, if you're pro-establishment, then the patients will give you a hard time. So uh, anyways, we, you know, when we were filming, nobody that was a, uh, an active government official would go on and just to say, this is why this disease is is uh, crafty, how it invades your immune system, etc. So we finally said, well, we'll just talk to the discoverer who's retired from the NIH now in Hamilton, Montana. So we flew with a crew out there and filmed Willie Bergdorfer, who discovered it uh, the or causative organism in 1981. Right, and before we get to uh, to Willie, uh, it's true that you know there's no telethon for Lyme disease. There are no ribbon campaigns for Lyme disease. There's no even concerted sort of 
government PR, uh, public service announcements, really, about Lyme disease. And yet, as you say, 400,000 cases a year, it's, it's an epidemic. It is very strange. Uh, and, and perhaps we'll, we'll find out why, as you say, uh, the CDC and the NIH run out of the room whenever it's, it's brought up. And, and that brings us to, to Willy Bergdorfer. He started out in, he's from Switzerland, is he not? Yes, he was a medical zoologist from the Swiss Tropical Institute in Basel, Switzerland. Okay, and so tell me about what Willy Bergdorfer Dorfer discovered. Um, besides discovering the, the spirochete, uh, which was named after him, what else did he discover? Well, uh, when this freaky set of tick-borne diseases showed up around Lyme, Connecticut and Long Island, he you know, was sent ticks and blood from patients from Connecticut, and he saw the spirochete, and he saw um, in almost every one of the human patients these little organisms called rickettsias, which are... They're little sausage-shaped bacterium, but they invade, in, they go inside cells and they behave more like viruses than bacteria in that they they can't live on their own in a petri dish very well. They have to go inside cells, rob them of their energy, and then they multiply and explode the cells like viruses and then uh, go on to explode more and more cells. Right. He also was involved with the U.S. government's Rocky Mountain Laboratory in Montana, Back in the 1950s, what was happening there? Yeah, so right when he came over from Switzerland after getting his PhD and working as a, a postdoc, he got a fellowship there. And he almost immediately went into um, the, or became a contractor in the U.S. bioweapons program. This is at Fort Detrick, Maryland. That was uh, the, the headquarters for the entire U.S. Cold War bioweapons program. So he did a series of experiments where he would infect fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes with diseases so that they could use those as weapons against our enemies. So they were bug bombs, basically. So, and but he wasn't aware of this at the time, correct? He thought he was collecting ticks all across the country in order to protect people. Meanwhile, he was actually part of a, a, a program to turn these ticks into weapons? Yeah, so, I mean... If you look at the public-facing story, the history of Lyme disease starts in 81, and he was the hero because he discovered it. You know, Yale had been looking at it in the public health departments for a decade, and they couldn't figure out what was making people sick. But uh, my research shows he knew immediately that he was going to join the bioweapons program. So he was like, he ran the tick zoo, so he would collect ticks from all over the world, and Fort Dietrich would say, well, we need a tick that works, you know, in Cuba. Uh, what kind of diseases can you put into that? So he would take various species of ticks, uh, make these very tiny pipette, glass pipettes, shove them in the tick mouth, and then put in really bad diseases to see what would stick. And then uh, one thing my book revealed is that the, a CIA branch that was the, it's the branch of the CIA that was thinking up hundreds of ways to assin- assassinate Castro in Cuba. Um, at one point, thought, well, let's destroy their cash crop, which is uh, sugarcane. So a CIA guy dropped boxes of infected ticks on the sugarcane workers um, in a pilot. The thing that um, the military said, I'll just read this about their strategy about weaponizing insects, is this is an army report. 
It says the advantages of arthropods, that's those are like ticks um, and lice, et cetera, as bioweapons carriers are these. They inject the agent directly into the body so that a mask is no protection to a soldier. And they remain alive for some time, keeping an area constantly dangerous. So it's hard to believe we did that, but we did. Well, I guess that's a little more sophisticated than trying to strap bombs on dolphins, which they also tried to do to take out Castro. Did you ever hear about that? They wanted to... Because Castro was famous for taking a daily swim in the ocean, and they actually thought they could train dolphins to swim into Castro and uh, detonate this bomb strapped on their backs. So about that, but they had they smeared fungus inside a wetsuit, and they also created an exploding conch shell. So when he went diving and he picked up this beautiful, perfect conch shell, it would explode. Oh my! Of course, those worked. So back to the ticks and, and Bergdorfer. He was also involved uh, at Fort Detrick in Maryland, uh, something called the Anthrax Hotel. Do you know about that? Yeah, so that was just where uh, Anthrax was on this the list of select pathogens for bioweaponization. He didn't actually work in there because he was more of an, uh, a bug guy right. than a microbiologist. But at Dietrich, there was the Anthrax Hotel where all those experiments went, went and uh, they were actually never able to detoxify that because anthrax uh, exists in the environment in little cracks and crevices for so long, so they had to destroy that building. But he worked on um, with another entomologist, Jim Oliver, um, in trying to figure out how you could package ticks in little bomblets and put them in larger bombs and the bombs would be dropped from planes. Little bomblets would explode at a certain altitude and it would rain ticks or mosquitoes on a battalion-sized area. And of course, they would be filled with a pathogen that would either be incapacitating or fatal, depending on you know what the military objective was. By the time you met and, and uh, interviewed Bergdorfer, I guess he was in the final stages of Parkinson's disease. I think you, you, you did the, the final interview with him shortly before his death. Was he able to confirm that Lyme disease can trace its roots back to the bioweapons program? Um, he did not say that the spirochete was a bioweapon, the Lyme spirochete. He implied to me and other people that it was this other organism, the little Rickettsial, that was in all the patients there and that he was asked to cover that up. And so the problem with spirochetes as a weapon, they're very slow growing, they're hard to grow outside of ticks. Um, so the military went to Rickettsials as, and anthrax as a kind of bacterium that could be um, grown in large vats or like tanks like you would brew beer in large large quantities by the ton and then they would freeze dry them and create little particles and then they would mill them to a certain size and put them with a growth media and then they could spray it from ships or from planes or from buoys you know it would be an invisible killing wind so some of those diseases like tularemia or um, the rickettsials uh, can be spread by ticks. So they might be doing a pilot study and it would get in the environment, it would get in the ticks and they could spread that way. So the rickettsials were what were accidentally released during this bioweapons program and then these rickettsials just worked their way through the, the biosphere? Is that what happened? Yeah, I mean, I think they would be breathed 
breathed into rabbits, etc. So I didn't absolutely 100% prove it, but I have Willie saying that. I have scientific documents saying these organisms were went through the process of weaponization. So there's a you know 100 experiments that have to happen before it's a weapon that you can send to a a depot, a military depot, and you know deploy them. But there are also like hundreds of pilot tests that happen in open air conditions. So I found that a lot. Like um, they were trying to weaponize uh, or use as weapons these ticks called Lone Stars that originally were only in the southern states. Um, but they're very aggressive ticks. They have eyes, unlike the black legged ticks. And so they can stalk their prey rather than just sitting on a blade of grass. And so they thought, well, these are really great. Uh, they're also like the terminator of insects. You, they can be underwater for 80 days and still live, you know, in brackish conditions, like a swamp in Vietnam, or they can be in a refrigerator, Willie said for years, but the experiments were for a month or whatever. But so they're hard to kill. They stalk their prey, they spread faster, and they carry rickettsels. So that was one of the ticks that were targeted as a weapon. And what they did is they did open air tests completely uncontrolled uh, along the Atlantic bird flyway in the late 60s of these Lone Star ticks. And they also made them radioactive so they could trace how far they would creep and fly on birds, et cetera, over years. And they could tell that, that they were the original ticks because they would paint them with acrylic or they would use Geiger counters because they were radioactive. So surely, like a year after these Virginia Atlantic bird flyway tick experiments, those ticks started making their way up the coast, up through New York. 71, they were established in Long Island, and then now, you know, they're close to Canada. It's named after Lyme, Connecticut, which is supposedly where the, the outbreak first took place in the 70s. Is that just a cover story, or... Um, why why Lyme, Connecticut? Well, that's where Yale first, well, a housewife, Polly Murray from Lyme, Connecticut, started noticing her neighbors were getting sick. And she, even though she was an artist's mom, she started collecting epidemiological data on who had it, what the symptoms were. And she's the one that pounded for several years on the public health doors and finally the CDC to say, you really have to investigate that. So in hindsight, I wonder if the CDC knew about it and they were just trying to figure out what to do about it. And once she made it public, then they had to launch a public investigation. But, um, you know, I my theory is that they knew it was either an escape virus or rickettsial. The government did. And then they used the spirochete as sort of a deflection from the real cause. And they thought, well, we'll just rush and get a vaccine and and we'll tell everybody to take doxycycline and I'll get, that'll kill most of the deadly germs. Um, but then it just went off the rails uh, and it started spreading and the vaccine didn't work. Uh, they just haven't, you know, been f- forthright on this rickettsial, which Willie said it was covered up. He was told to find ticks without it in it and just sweep it under the rug. So now it this would tend to to uh, answer the question, you know, why do the CDC and the doctors and scientists from NIH run in the opposite direction when you want to find out about Lyme disease, uh, and also why the the protocols aren't covered by insurance? Because would that not be an admission of 
I don't know, government culpability in this matter? Um, it would be a lot like Agent Orange or the Tuskegee experiments for the government where, oops, we did these military operations, uh, the general public was harmed, and there would be lawsuits and reparations that would have to happen. So, you know, that's, uh, I haven't been able to prove 100% that there's a cover up. But, you know, I do have the people involved in the investigation early on. They talk about this Rickettsel, which tests positive for this thing they call the Swiss agent, which is a Rickettsel. And they were saying, you know, they were saying that we think this is what's making people sick around Lyme disease. But then, you know, in 1980, all mention of it disappeared. It was never mentioned again. And and for legitimate scientists, when they publish a study, I mean, there's a code of ethics that say you present the evidence you have, even if it doesn't fit your theory, you know, and their theory was this disease is called caused by the spirochete because you never know what's going to happen along the way. I mean, most scientists, when science, when it first is published is not hundred percent right. It's an evolution and an iteration of studies. So it was, you know, Willie felt bad about not mentioning this Rickettsel, which I call Swiss agent USA. And, you know, it was in the first draft of his discovery article and then it disappeared. And he told me it didn't set well with him to hide that. He said, oh, it was political. We should point out you just won a, a Nautilus Book Award for investigative journalism. Uh, where do you go from here with this? Because, uh, I mean, are you are you still hoping to make the case, the definitive case, uh, that that this that this was created as a bioweapon, and that the I don't know maybe there's a class action lawsuit here. Um, I. I still want to wrap it up. The book was on a deadline and I was very, uh, I made sure I was very clear about what are the facts and, you know, what are the dotted lines, uh, the supporting evidence, and this is what we don't know. Uh, So I'm continuing with the research and hoping I can tie it up. But also I'm realistic that, I mean, most of the people involved in the bioweapons program say, yeah, we just like shoveled this documentation in the furnace, burned them. But I have been able to put together this story, which, you know, like a hundred thousand piece puzzle. And I have, and I've given, you know, I've made some really uh, novel discoveries that will help scientists today. And, you know, the biggest conclusion of the book is that we need to, to not create this polarized environment where the scientists and the medical people say, you either have Lyme or you are crazy and a hypochondriac. You know, we need to say, hey, let's look at everything in the tick. Because back then, maybe we, we we didn't have genetic sequencing and we couldn't find all the organisms in the tick. And then we need more research that researches what happens when Lyme is injected in a body with these other organisms and how does that disease present and how do you treat it to get rid of it instead of just writing off a whole generation of tens of thousands of patients. Right, except uh, they will catch 22. Uh, you can't study the problem if they're not willing to, I guess, admit that there is a problem. So what do we, what's the trajectory then of this disease if we continue on, you know, lo- looking in the other direction? How, how, how bad is it likely to get? What are the, what are the legacy costs here? 
Well, I think it's incredibly devastating to society. The the costs of long-term Lyme disease and the associated co-infections are great. It destroys families. People lose jobs. In a system where you can't have or afford health insurance if you aren't working, it's it's horrible, you know? And part of it of this is you have a bunch of academics invested in, you know, and they're in their 70s and they have 300 or so publications saying the disease is like this and they're trained as scientists to study one germ at a time in a human. And then you have the reality of the tick-borne diseases and you don't even have to buy into it was a bioweapon or not. You just say, we haven't done our homework on these messy mixed co-infections and we need more research on that and we need to not you know abandon those patients in our medical system it's so inhumane i just the stories i hear every week just break my heart and nothing has changed for 20 years so i you know i don't know if this generation of scientists just has to retire so we can move on but certainly the evidence is there that we missed the boat on this disease and we need to write this ship. Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, uh, now uh, available on in paperback very shortly, I understand, in a matter of uh, a couple of weeks, perhaps, or a week? Uh, so June 30th, it's available on paperback. Ah, just a, a week. All right. Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, and how do we get a copy? Um, it's sold through all the major book venues, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, it's audio and um, Kindle versions too. Chris, thank you for uh, spending some time. Fascinating story and uh, I hope you, uh, you keep on it. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. There's never been a more important time to focus on our physical well-being, build up our natural immune system, and take control of our health. That's why the mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon of ESS-60 from C60 Evo every morning. ESS-60 is the consumable form of carbon-60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize winning chemists. ESS-60 from C60 Evo is the purest form of ESS-60 on the market. They produce the formula of ESS-60 that was used in a landmark animal longevity study in Paris, where rats that were fed ESS-60 lived twice their natural lifespans, twice. ESS-60 from C60 Evo is 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. It's truly a mega antioxidant. How does it make me feel? Well, I'm 56 years old and I'm pain-free, pain-free. My energy levels are through the roof and I sleep like a baby. The mighty Aphrodite is noticing the exact same benefits. ESS-60 delivers better health, mental clarity, and immune support. Experience the benefits for yourself. To order, go to the notes for this episode and click on the C60 Evo link. Save 5% on your order by entering the code RS1SPEC. RS1SPEC. And if you order based on a monthly refill, you'll save even more. Get your bottle of this miracle molecule ESS60 today from C60 Evo and again, Go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the C60 Evo link. Then enter the code 
RS1 SPEC to start saving. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your health care provider. Coming up next time, Why Evil Matters. How science and religion fumbled a big one. So we have our conscious experience that's inside our head. But as soon as we acknowledge that, wow, there seems to be a lot of evidence that there's other stuff going on, whether it's psychic or near-death experience or afterlife encounters or past life, whatever it is, you take all that stuff and bundle it up and say, there's some kind of extended consciousness out there that we need to at least acknowledge. And I would suggest that if we're not willing to look at evil as maybe a lens for looking into that, then you can't really get spirituality right. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 